Okay, out there in the Pilates stratosphere, welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with your host, Raphael Bender. And I'm doing a solo episode again today. And what I want to talk about with you today is the question, should we worry about anterior pelvic tilt? And uh, well, the short answer is no, we shouldn't. Uh, but we're going to go deep on this one and look at all of the reasons that I can think of that um, I used to worry about <laughs> pelvic tilt and that I think people, uh, the reasons people currently um, worry about pelvic tilt. And uh, I'm going to talk about each of those in as much depth as possible. All right. So the first thing about anterior pelvic tilt. So I guess when I was when I was a kid in Pilates years, when I was growing up in my Pilates certification and the first few years of teaching, I used to uh, have a set of beliefs around pelvic tilt. Uh, that firstly, that pelvic tilt uh, can be assessed. You know, that I could measure it, I could see it from across a room, I thought, uh, that I could palpate people's, you know, like uh, touch with my fingertips, people's ASIS and PSIS, the anterior superior iliac spine and the posterior superior iliac spine on their pelvis, and then, you know, measure the dis the, the horizontal, sorry, the vertical distance between those points and, uh, you know, measure whether they had an anterior pelvic tilt or a neutral pelvis or posterior pelvic tilt on the left side and on the right side. And so that was one thing I believed that I could uh, measure anterior pelvic tilt using my fingers or my eyes. And I also I believed that pelvic tilt was an indicator of muscle balance. So if someone had an anteriorly tilted pelvis, according to my assessment, uh, I understood that to mean that they had some combination of tight and slash or overactive hip flexors and low back and weak and slash or underactive uh, slash long uh, glutes, hamstrings and lower abdominals. Um, and then I would write a program, a uh, Pilates program for that client based around those um, assumptions, you know, so if they had an anterior pelvic tilt, I would strengthen their abs and their glutes and their hamstrings, and I would stretch their hip flexors and their lower back. So I would do lots of, uh, you know, spine flexion and lots of hip extension and lots of ab strengthening and lots of butt strengthening and lots of hamstring strengthening. So that was, that was kind of the set of beliefs that I had. Um, and then, you know, under, I guess, sort of underpinning that <laughs> exercise program is the belief that you can change pelvic, I could change pelvic tilt through exercise. So there's a whole set of assumptions. One, that you can measure pelvic tilt. Two, that uh, pelvic tilt is an indicator of muscle imbalances or balances. Um, and three, that you can change pelvic tilt through exercises to strengthen and stretch muscles. And I guess there's, a, there's an even more fundamental uh, assumption underneath all of those, which is that pelvic tilt is an undesirable thing to have. Like we, you wouldn't, you don't want to have an anterior pelvic tilt. It's better to have a neutral pelvis. Um, so there's all, all those um, assumptions there, um, which all of which I now don't believe anymore. And so uh, here are 
here's here's here are the reasons, and here's here's the process that I went through uh, to let go of those beliefs. So, well, firstly, you know, and this all came about basically when I was when I've been researching um, for mainly for the diploma of clinical Pilates, but you know, a lot for Instagram or podcast episodes or. Uh, you know, present workshops and presentations, community sessions that I do, you know, usually involves a fair bit of preparation, looking at research. And uh, because, you know, probably, you know, I'd like, I guess I'd like to think that this is kind of a civic minded thing that I like to tell the truth as much as possible and give accurate information. But also, like, I'm sure there's a lot of self serving motivation in there. I just don't want to be made to look like a fool if I tell you something that turns out to be untrue, which I should have known, you know, at the time. So, um, so I like to try and cover my bases as much as possible. And I try, I, I do try not to make claims that I don't have evidence for. I'm sure I often don't succeed in that, but I do my best. Uh, and so when I'm preparing a you know a lecture for the diploma or a community session or whatever it might be, I actually look up the research. So I'm, you know, I'm writing my lecture or whatever. I'm going, oh yeah, here's how you check anterior pelvic tilt. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's true. I better get a reference for that. So I go and look on Google Scholar and then I discover what's actually uh, known about this topic. And so it turns out that we can't measure pelvic tilt. And there are a whole host of reasons for this. Um, The first reason and when I say we can't measure pelvic tilt, I mean we can't measure it with our eyes and our hands. You can measure it by X-ray. You can measure by ultrasound. You can, uh, I don't know ultrasound actually. You can measure by X-ray, by CT, by MRI. Um, you can't measure it by hand or eye. Even if, like me, dear listen up, <laughs> you think you can. I thought I could. I th- I knew I could. I knew I was really good at measuring pelvic tilt. I was extremely precise. I taught a lot of people exactly how to position the center of the pad of their index finger on the most prominent part of the ASIS, get down to eye level and look at those fingers horizontal. I taught them all of the things. So I was highly precise. <clears throat> and I knew exactly how to measure it, but if, it turns out that actually I was really just uh, measuring nothing. Uh, I was just fooling myself, basically. Um, and so, yeah, we can't measure it for a number of reasons. And the first one is that pelvises are not symmetrical. So, uh, you know, this just totally makes intuitive sense uh, when you think about any other body part. So like you think about um, people's faces, <laughs> you know that people's faces are not symmetrical. Uh, you know that your own face is not symmetrical. Um, we all have some asymmetry in our faces, whether your nose is crooked like mine is, or whether you have one ear bigger than the other, like I do, <laughs> or whether one eye is a little bit higher or lower, or whether, you know, cheekbones are different heights, your smile is crooked. Like, all of us have some degree of asymmetry in our face. And we kind of take that for granted. I mean, that doesn't seem to be a very controversial thing to me uh, to say. But what a lot of people don't know is that that is the case everywhere in the body. So, um, you know, anthropologists, when they uh, study the bones of 100,000-year-old hominins, um, you know, ancient humans, they can determine whether the person was right or left-handed. And they can determine that because the dominant hand, the bones are larger. And the bones are larger because 
they are subjected to more force because we use a dominant hand more, and thus the bones are loaded more, thus the bones uh, accrue calcium uh, more, and they become denser and thicker. So uh, for all of us, our dominant arm generally is the bones are thicker, we have more muscle mass um, on the dominant arm compared to the non-dominant arm. Uh, Same with your feet. I'm sure you've noticed, if you've ever bought a pair of shoes, uh, that your feet are not exactly the same size. You probably have one foot slightly bigger than the other. That is completely normal. Most people, so I can't remember the exact stat, but I did see it the other day, something like 80% of people have a leg length difference of like yeah, up to one centimeter. Um, and that is turns out to be completely normal as well. And I'll see if I can, I'll make a note here. I'll see if I can dig out the literature on that. Um and put it in the show notes for you. But, you know, all of these types of asymmetries are completely normal. They're, you know, highly prevalent. You know, the vast majority of people have asymmetries. Uh, And that is also the case with all parts of our bodies. So, for instance, if you you look at individual vertebral bones, um, I'm lucky enough to have a very, very high-quality set of medical uh, vertebral models, which are models of an individual human's uh, vertebrae. Uh, and looking at them closely, it's plain to see that the, each vertebra is not actually symmetrical. Like they've, you know, they're not perfectly symmetrical. They've got bony outgrowths, the, you know, that are on one side, not the other. The, the spinous processes are crooked. The transverse processes are not even. They're not even height. They're not even, they're not even pointing in the same direction sideways. One of them points a bit more forward. One of them points a bit more sideways. So like, on every level, on the on the on the macro level, and on the on, on the gross level, and on the sort of the minute level, humans are not symmetrical, and this applies to our pelvises as well. So our pelvises are formed by the left and the right uh, innominate. Each innominate is basically just means a pelvic bone, one half of the pelvis, and they're joined together at the front in the by the symphysis pubis, the pubic joint, and at the back they join together with the sacrum at the sacroiliac joints, and they form the pelvic girdle. And so you have a left and a right pelvic bone, uh, and each of those pelvic bones has an anterior, is, has an ilium, which is the main sort of upper part of the pelvic bone, uh, and the iliac spine, which you can feel if you put your hands on your hips and slide your uh, sort of uh, slide your fingers down to your pelvis and feel the kind of the the bony ridge of the top of your pelvis. That's called the iliac spine, and spine means backbone. And ilium is the name of the bone, so that is like the backbone of the ilium, the iliac spine. And then if you slide your fingers down the front of that, and you'll find that eventually you run out of it, and you kind of fall off the iliac spine onto just kind of muscles. And the point just before where you fall off the iliac spine is the anterior superior iliac spine. And that is literally means the forwardmost, upwardmost backbone of the Ilium. So the forwardmost, upwardmost, pokey outy bit of the ilium. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the ASIS or anterior superior iliac spine uh, is one of the bony, bony landmarks that we palpate. And you probably, you know, this is probably stuff that you already know if you do a lot of posture assessment um, that we palpate to assess someone's pelvic tilt. And the textbook definition that I was taught of neutral pelvis is when the anterior superior iliac spine is vertically aligned with the symphysis pubis, the pubic joint. Um, now, of course, 
in a Pilates session, we can't palpate or it's not even really good manners to look closely at someone's symphysis pupus. So we use a proxy measure. We use the PSIS or the posterior superior iliac spine, which is analogous to the anterior superior iliac spine, but it's at the back of the pelvis. And you can find it by sliding your hand along the iliac spine until you get to the back there. And it's the and if you kind of rub your thumb up and down, you'll find the kind of backward most pokeyati bit of the pelvis, and that is the PSIS. And it's it's a lot. It's you know it's kind of next to the sacrum there. And so the PSIS and the ASIS. When I was a kid, I was taught that uh, when they're level in a male, or when the PSIS is one to two centimeters higher in a female that correlates to the pelvis being neutral. Uh, and turns out that that is not true because uh, PSIS and ASIS are variable in height uh, between and within individuals. So uh, if we get, you know, 20 people and look at their, and, you know, X-ray them, measure their PSIS height, and their ASIS height, and the height of their iliac crest and the height of their symphysis pubis, and look at all those things relative to each other, what we find is there's significant variation between those things. So, for example, uh, in this one study by Priest et al., which is Priest 2008, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, they found that pelvises were, there was um, 11 degrees of variation but left to right between the height of the ASIS. So left to right ASIS was 11 degrees uh, variation and 16 millimetres variation in the iliac crest height left to right. Now, how did they measure this? Well, they, these are actually cadaver pelvises. So these were pelvises of people who died and donated their body to science. And they took these pelvises and put them in a jig which is just basically a clamp that holds it on a <laughs> in position. And they put them in a jig in such a position so that they were perfectly neutral. So the ASIS and the symphysis pubis were aligned perfectly in the vertical plane. What they found was uh, left to right, there was up to 16 millimeters variation in the crest and the height of the iliac crest when it was in perfect neutral and up to 23 degrees variation in height between the ASIS to the PSIS. So that means like some ASIS were perfectly level with the PSIS when the pelvis was neutral and some PSIS were like three centimeters above the ASIS in a perfectly neutral pelvis. Um, and this uh, paper is really great. I think you should, if you're interested, you should definitely uh, click through and read it. They've got some great photos in there that makes it really um, sort of easy to visualize. So there's a lot of variation both between you know one person and another, and also even within the same person from side to side in the location of these bony landmarks. You know, pelvises are not the same, and this totally you know like once I learned this, it totally made sense intuitively. Like you can t you know people's faces are all different. We're all unique, right? And what makes our faces different? That we have different widths of face, different heights, different shapes of cheeks, different prominence of eyebrows, different size nose, different skin color, different amounts of body fat on our different parts of our face, different size lips, you know, different shaped jaws. We have so many individual differences in our faces. Why would we not have those same individual differences in our pelvises? And, you know, people's eyes are further apart or closer together. They're bigger or smaller. People's brows are more prominent or less, et cetera, et cetera. 
So, and that is just exactly the same variation you see in people's pelvises. Pelvises are not symmetrical. So, when we uh, you know measure a pelvis, we go, oh, the ASIS in this high, this side is lower or higher or whatever. It's like we don't know. That doesn't necessarily mean that the pelvis is not neutral. It could easily mean that this person just genetically has that ASIS a bit lower than the other side or than the average bear or whatever. So um, pelvises are not symmetrical. You can't assume that just because an ASIS is higher or lower than some other part on the um, pelvis, that that means it's neutral or posterior or anterior. The second thing is we're actually crap. When I say we, I mean me and you and experienced osteopaths and physiotherapists <laughs> are crap at palpating <laughs> um, lumbopelvic landmarks. Uh, now, I used to believe I was awesome at this. I could palpate SI joint movement and palpate the lumbar spinous processes. I could palpate the transverse processes and the facet joints. I could palpate everything. I could palpate the left L4-5 lumbar multifidus. Um, I could palpate everything really well. I taught a lot of people to palpate it, um, which I'm just a, a little bit embarrassed about now, but you know, you do the best you can with what you got at the time. But it turns out that uh, even when uh, people like me, and possibly you, are very experienced and confident at what they're doing, we still suck <laughs> at lumbopelvic landmark palpation. So this is from a systematic review from 2020 by Alexander et al. called The Validity of Lumbopelvic Landmark Palpation by Manual Practitioners, a systematic review from the International Journal, Journal of Osteopathic Medicine. And what they found was that basically uh, experienced practitioners can't palpate bony landmarks. I think I've got a quote here. Um, they, they found, uh, quote, the use of lumbopelvic landmark palpation does not reach clinically acceptable levels of validity, end quote. So in other words, we suck at it, even when we're highly confident, highly experienced. We know exactly what we're doing. We can feel it there. It's definitely on the right spot. But then uh, the other experienced person who's just as experienced and just as confident, just as knowledgeable, will just as confidently point to a spot that is like one centimeter different <laughs> to what we pointed to. So um, unfortunately, uh, yeah, that is not a useful skill I spent years developing. Turns out I was developing the skill of fooling myself that I was <laughs> accurately palpating <laughs> those uh, landmarks, not the skill of actually <laughs> palpating the landmarks. Um, so yeah, so, right, so there's two reasons why we can't measure pelvic tilt uh, without an x-ray. And uh, the first one is that ASIS and PSIS and iliac crest height is quite variable, but up to 23 degrees, 16 millimeters between people and within the same person. And also, secondly, that uh, humans are just <laughs> shit. <laughs> at palpating lumbopelvic landmarks, even when we think we're really good at it. Um, the second belief that I had is that pelvic, pelvic tilt, right? So what I just said is, is not, pelvic tilt is not a thing. I just said, you can't measure it. You can't measure it by hand or eye. You can measure it by x-ray though, or by a CT or by MRI. So pelvic tilt, you know, uh, so far, according to what we've discussed, you know, we haven't disproved that it's a thing, but what we have shown, uh, and if you read the research, I'll pop it in the show notes, is that you can't measure it 
without an X-ray, basically, um, even if you think you can. Now, the second assumption that I used to work from was that pelvic tilt was an indicator of muscle balance. So, you know, someone had a pelvic tilt because their glutes were weak, their abs were weak, their hip flexors were tight, their low back was overactive, all of that stuff. And so that seemed just like totally intuitive uh, to me. That seems like, yeah, pretty obvious when I think about those muscles, think about the low back pulling up and the hip flexors pulling down and the glutes not pulling down and the abs not pulling up. And I picture all that in my mind. I think, yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, and I've seen all the diagrams in the textbooks and maybe you have too, dear listener. Um, but it turns out to be not true. <laughs> like a lot of things that are quite intuitive turns out to be not true. So um, there have been quite a number of experiments done where people, uh, the scientists uh, basically measure pelvic tilt. So they'll measure it with either an inclinometer on the sacrum and then on the, say, the L5 or whatever, L1, whatever, or they'll measure it by X-ray. And then they'll also measure the strength and the range of motion of, say, the low back muscles and the hip flexors and the hamstrings and the glutes and the abs. Uh, and what they consistently find is that pelvic tilt does not correlate with any of these things. So if you, you know, measure someone's pelvic tilt using x-ray and then you measure their abdominal strength, what we find is some people have more or less pelvic tilt, some people have more or less abdominal strength, and there's no correlation between someone's abdominal strength and their pelvic tilt. I mean, think about it for a sec. A lot of gymnasts have an anterior pelvic tilt. I mean, who knows if they do? I just look at them and it looks like they do. Maybe their butts just poke out because I have to remember that I'm crap at, <laughs> I'm crap at uh, uh, assessing these things, even though I think I'm not. Um, but gymnasts don't have weak abs. They've got unbelievably strong abs. They don't have tight hips. They've got unbelievably flexible hips. So anyway, um, Pelvic tilt, so it doesn't correlate with muscle balance. So people can have strong or weak abs, strong or weak hip flexors, tight or not tight hip flexors, tight or not tight glutes, weak or strong glutes, etc. And the pelvic tilt and the muscle strength and the muscle length is just not correlated. It's they're not they're not correlated. So when you when you measure someone's pelvic tilt, even if you measure it by X-ray, it doesn't tell you anything about the length or strength of their abdominals or hip flexors or low back or hamstrings, uh, or glutes. So, um, and I've got a bunch of studies on that, which I will uh, pop in the show notes. Um, and there, we also have, uh, like, intervention studies uh, where we give exercise to people uh, to try and change their pelvic tilt. And uh, what we find is you basically can't. Um, so the first one, the first study is about abdominal strength. And uh, so they basically did an, uh, I think it was an eight-week intervention. of a, So they measured people's pelvic tilt. And then they uh, gave them an eight-week intervention of abdominal, lower abdominal strengthening. And then, excuse me, they measured their pelvic tilt again. And what they found was their abdominals got stronger, but their pelvic tilt didn't change. Uh, and they've done the same thing with uh, hamstring stretching. So they measured pelvic tilt and then gave people an eight-week program of hamstring stretching, and what they found was their hamstrings got more flexible, but their pelvic tilt didn't change. So, um, yeah, so we have both a lack of correlation and also a lack of causation. <laughs> um, so it seems pretty darn clear that pelvic tilt is not related to muscle balance. 
Um, so knowing what someone's pelvic tilt is doesn't tell you anything about their abdominals, low back, hip flexors, glutes, or hamstrings. Um, and in fact, you can't really change pelvic tilt with exercise anyway at all, even like motor control exercises. So where you're like practicing standing in a different posture, for example, there was a 2020 systematic review by, uh, Felk Breck et al., a month of a bunch of other fine Norwegian sounding folk, um, called Non-Surgical Interventions for Excessive Anterior Pelvic Tilt in Symptomatic and Non-Symptomatic Adults, a systematic review from 2020. Um, And they found, quote, no overall evidence for the effect of non-surgical treatment in reducing excessive anterior pelvic tilt, close quote. So there is no evidence uh, uh, anywhere in the literature (laughs) that exercise can change pelvic tilt tilt. All right, so we can't measure it. Uh, It doesn't correlate with muscle balance and we can't change it, probably can't change it with exercise. Now, no overall evidence that we can change it is not the same thing as evidence that we can't change it. So, you know, watch this space. It may be the case that that will change over time uh, as new uh, new, uh, research is done. But at the moment, we have no evidence that you can change pelvic tilt with exercise, and it has been studied. It has been studied. Um, and yeah, so you can't measure it. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything about muscle balance. Uh, we can't change it. And finally, like, you know, why, why should we care about it? Well, it doesn't even cause low back pain. So... <laughs> Uh, in fact, pelvic people with anterior pelvic tilt have less back pain <laughs> than people with a posterior pelvic tilt. Um, and this is from a 2017 paper called The Relationships Between Low Back Pain and Lumbar Lordosis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from the Spine Journal from Chun et al. in 2017. And they found, and I don't have a quote, but basically they found that people with a posterior pelvic tilt had more low back pain than people with an anterior pelvic tilt or neutral pelvis. So anterior pelvic tilt is associated with less low back pain compared to people with a posterior pelvic tilt. So for all of those reasons, anterior pelvic tilt, in my view, is something we don't need to worry about. But there's another reason, which is that uh, it seems to be actually the vast majority of people have a, quote, anterior pelvic tilt. So this is from a study from 2011 uh, from Harrington et al. called Assessment of the Degree of Pelvic Tilt Within a Normal Asymptomatic Population. So asymptomatic means symptom-free, you know, no back pain. And this is from the Manual Therapy Journal in 2011. And what they found was that in their sample of like 250 people, 75% of pain-free women and 85% of pain-free men have an anterior pelvic tilt. So that's an average like 80% of the adult pain-free population have an anterior pelvic tilt. Now, if 80% of pain-free people have this, is it really a tilt? I mean, can you actually say that that's a tilt? if that's the normal state of 80% of pain-free adults, or is it just, is that just the normal shape of the human pelvis? You know, have we, have we, you know, why did 
you know, why is it why is it true that when the ASIS and the symphysis pubis are vertically aligned perfectly, that that is neutral? Like, why why you know why would evolution design us with something being perfectly straight? You know, no other part of our body is perfectly straight. Our femurs aren't perfectly straight. <laughs> You know, our spinous processes aren't perfectly straight. Why would be, you know, having the symphysis pubis and the ASIS perfectly vertically aligned be the, quote, normal, you know, position for the pelvis? Like, that's just a completely arbitrary standard as far as I'm aware. Uh, anybody who knows any evidence to the contrary, please, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but, yeah, it turns out that 80% of pain-free adults have a, quote, anterior pelvic tilt, end quote. So maybe it's not a tilt. Maybe it's just... Maybe that's just the shape of the the human pelvis. Um, so maybe pel- anterior pelvic tilt isn't even a thing. Maybe it's not even a thing. Maybe it does. Maybe it's a made up dysfunction. Maybe we just thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if everything was a straight line? Wouldn't it be great if the symphysis pubis and the ASIS were vertically aligned and that was the perfect anatomical position for humans? Oh, if your ASIS is in front of the symphysis pubis, that means you're incorrect. You're an anterior pelvic tilter. Well, what if that was just some, a made-up thing that's not true, just based on some kind of arbitrary aesthetic or geometric ideal? You know, whoever made that up was a little bit OCD. Look in this their stock sock drawer; everything's lined up and color coded. Well, actually, if you look in my sock drawer, that's what you'll see. <laughs> so, there's no no criticism, no judgment, but of, of you, dear listener, if your sock drawer is like that, um, but. Yeah, what if it's not a thing? So it's not associated with back pain, okay? And eighty percent of people have it. So, huh? Yeah, is it a thing? In fact, we know from um, uh, the athletic literature that actually certain sports, uh, in certain sports, people with anterior pelvic tilt perform better. So, for instance, in uh, sprinting, people with anterior pelvic tilt dominate the you know elite levels of sprinting, whereas in marathon running, people with a posterior pelvic tilt seem to do a lot better. So, you know, that probably is a lot to do with genetics. Um, but yeah, so the, it might not be the case that there is one ideal pelvic alignment. Uh, uh, but if there is one ideal pelvic alignment, uh, it, there's no evidence that anterior pelvic tilt is bad. Uh, doesn't cause pain. and uh, or it's not associated with back pain, and it is prevalent in eighty percent of the adult population. So, I guess you know those are my those are my kind of big um, thoughts. Uh, the pelvis is not symmetrical. We're crap at palpating and visualizing <laughs> the body landmarks. Even experienced practitioners with a lot of training, um, it doesn't relate to muscle balance. Pelvic tilt doesn't relate to muscle balance. Doesn't relate to low back pain, and eighty percent of pain free adults have it. So it's like, why are we worried about this again? <laughs> What's the big deal? Why do we need to fix this? Uh, and moreover, we can't fix it because there's no evidence at all that exercise can make any difference to pelvic tilt. So <laughs> uh, yeah, why are we obsessed with pelvic tilt? Uh, maybe we don't need to be obsessed with pelvic tilt. Maybe the answer to what do we need to do about pelvic tilt is like, how about nothing? How about we do nothing about it? <laughs> how, about, how about we don't worry about it? How about we go and think about some more interesting things? Now, what I wanted to, you know, what that, what I sort of got to thinking as I was, you know, contemplating this uh, episode and putting together this research was that, you know, 
I think for some of us, you know, for me, maybe for you, maybe not for you, but for some people on a deeper level, this can really, this kind of mind frame shift can challenge our professional identity and our, and the value that we provide as Pilates instructors. So, you know, if we, if, if I, and I, this is how I used to view myself, that, that I, I was an expert in, you know, musculoskeletal anatomy. I knew all the names of the bits and the muscle actions and all of the things. And, uh, you know, when someone would come to me, I would assess their posture and use a plumb line and tell them, oh, that means your left TFL is tight and your right glute max is weak and your blah, blah, blah is blah, blah, blah. And I would tell them all these things. I would design this highly specific program to strengthen this and stretch that and da, da, da. Uh, and I thought that was the value I was providing. Okay, and when someone was when they were maybe doing their exercise, they were doing their hundred or they're doing their lunges or whatever, I would you know just come and give them a, a little sort of small correction to the rotation of their femur to externally rotate it a bit more to bias it a bit more to stretch their TFL and load their psoas a bit more. Or I would you know work their right hip in a little bit of abduction external rotation in lunges to emphasize the work of gluteus maximus. You know, so I you know I thought that that was the value that I was providing to people. And so when, you know, when I started to learn about this research and started to question the, the truth of these beliefs and the, you know, the, the value of some of the things that I was doing, it's like, all right, well, if I'm not correcting someone's pelvic tilt by adjusting the hip rotation in this exercise, like, well, what am I doing? <laughs> like, what value am I providing? And I think on a deeper level, like even just like, well, when our clients are exercising, like if we're not correcting their posture or telling them which, which muscles to activate, like what are we there for? Like what value are we adding that that person can't get from just a free on-demand Pilates session on YouTube of which there are like literally millions. So, you know, like why, you know, why would somebody come to us if, if all of a sudden, like, this professional identity is stripped from us, that we, you know, we're not, I mean, we may know a lot about muscular, you know, musculoskeletal anatomy, but it turns out that that's not a valuable, you know, approach to exercise programming in terms of, like, correcting someone's pelvic tilt, right? Because, one, you can't measure it. <laughs> Two... It doesn't correlate to muscle balance. Three, exercise can't change it. Four, it's not related to back pain. And five, 80% of pain-free people have it anyway. So is it really a pelvic tilt or is it just how pelvis is shaped? And we're trying to correct something that is like we're trying to correct someone's eye color <laughs> or the fact that they're, you know, one ear is bigger than the other. <laughs> Maybe it's something that doesn't need correcting and in fact can't be corrected and is already correct. So, you know, so what am I doing was my thought, like, what the fuck am I here for? What value am I providing? And it's over years that I've come to realize and through, you know, some great mentors uh, that I've had and, you know, books I've read that I've come to realize that actually the value that I provide, the value that you provide, dear listener, as a players instructor, I believe the vast majority of that value, the vast majority of the value that we provide as players instructors is motivational. And here's why. That Now, I think we provide massive value. I think we provide incredible value. I think Pilates is amazing and more people should do it and people should do it with an instructor. 
However, I think that we, for, for a long time, we, I, <laughs> and I'm assuming many of you, uh, have mistaken what it is that's valuable about what we do for our clients. You know, I thought for the longest time that what I did that was valuable for my clients was know all the muscles and tell them which bits to activate and tell them to pull their patellas up more or activate their VMO or contract their left piriformis more or whatever. I thought that was the value I was providing. Turns out that's not what's valuable for people. What's valuable for people for people is motivation. Now, here's here's why I've come to believe that. Uh, it it's 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 become abundantly clear through just shit tons of research that the the benefits of exercise accrue. You know, when, when we talk about benefits, I mean the health and well-being benefits of exercise. So, you know, um, greater longevity, fewer chronic diseases, more happiness, less stress, more well-being, all of that amazing stuff, right? Um, they Those benefits accrue regardless of your exercise technique, okay? Even regardless of which specific form of exercise you do, right? If you do Pilates or if you do weightlifting, you're going to get about the same amount of health benefit. Right. If you go run marathons or go for a walk, you're going to get about the same amount of health benefit. Okay. If you lift in perfect technique or you lift in quote terrible end quote technique, you're going to get about the same amount of health benefit. Right. So the health benefits accrue, like the vast majority of the health benefits, I would almost say like all of the health benefits (laughs) accrue from just doing it (laughs) rather than from what specific exercise you do or even more how you do that, you know, what specific, you know, technique, you know, your specific alignment or whatever. So the benefits accrue from doing it as opposed to not doing it. Now, there's definitely, uh, it's definitely the case that the intensity makes a difference, right? So if you run for half an hour versus walk for half an hour, running gives you more benefit, right? But if you run and walk and expend a similar amount of calories in each thing, right? You'll walk for longer to get the same number of calories done. You'll get about the same amount of health benefit, right? So it, the, you know, like for like, it doesn't matter what you do. It The intensity matters, the duration matters, but the technique or the specific modality doesn't matter for in terms of health benefits. And so the benefit that we provide, dear listener, is to get our clients to move. Right, because there's a freaking epidemic across the world of sedentary living. You know, some ridiculously small percentage, like I can't remember the exact number, but I think I quoted it from a study a couple of episodes back, like 20% or less, I think, of adults in the Western world meet the physical activity guidelines, which is 150 minutes of moderate intensity cardio. Um, and two to three resistance training sessions per week. So, and, and when you meet those guidelines, when you go from not meeting those guidelines to meeting those guidelines, you you achieve something like a 50%, 40 to 50% reduction in your chance of dying of any cause in the next 10 years. So that's major. That is substantial. So to go from not moving to moving is unbelievably beneficial. It's just incredibly beneficial, not to mention all of the benefits on mental health and all of the other things, you know, disease prevention, et cetera. So the vast majority of benefit comes from doing it, but yet hardly anyone is doing it, 
right? Most of us are not doing it. Now, you, dear listener, are probably doing it, right? I do it, but we ain't most people, right? We freaking love exercise, and so we do it because we love it, but most people don't love it and don't do it. And so the problem with, you know, the problem that stops people doing it is not that they don't know how to activate their piriformis, right? It's that they don't know how to motivate themselves or get their shit together to actually do it, right? So they could do any one of those 10 million free YouTube Pilates classes on their lounge room floor, but they don't. And why don't they? And you know this, you know this. You know that the hardest part about Pilates, the the hardest thing about Pilates is the moment of decision to actually go to class, right? Once you are at class, everything from there is easy. Like I will, I'd be very, very confident that you have never like gone to class, started class, and then halfway through class gone, you know what? I think I'm just going to go home and watch Netflix, right? Unless you've like, you know, had some kind of injury or fainting episode or something, right? If you've just been doing the class, I bet you never kind of got halfway through the hundreds and was like, oh, I'm just going to give up now. It's a bit hard. I'm going to go home, right? But I bet you have also started to do a home workout by yourself and got to a certain point where it started to hurt and gone like, you know what? I think I'll just take a break. (laughs) Maybe I'll finish my workout manana tomorrow, okay? And so it's the difference, you know, so that the, the, the the crucial decision point or the crucial like inflection point in someone's health journey is that moment when they're deciding whether to exercise now or quote later <laughs> end quote uh, we all know that later often becomes never so the the most crucial part about pilates in my view is deciding to do it right because once you do it, you get the benefits. Even if you look like ungainly and you can't do a perfect split and you're the wrong shape, end quote, you know, like doesn't matter. You still get all of the health benefits, right? But if you don't do it, you don't get the health benefits. So I think the biggest thing that we provide as instructors, we provide massive, massive, massive value, right? We extend people's lives. We improve people's mental health. We improve people's functional capacity. We reduce their stress. We improve their strength. We do all of these amazing things. We reduce the amount of cancer that they get, the amount of heart disease that they get, the number of strokes that they get. We get we do all of these things for people, but we don't do it by realigning their pelvis we do it by motivating them to show up for class. Now, whether that's a virtual class or an in-person class, whatever, we motivate them to show up to class. Now, how do we motivate them? Well, we we make it fun. We make it social. We help them set goals and strive towards achieving those goals. We create accountability. You know, we, we enable them to experience the benefits of exercise. Like, all of these things are highly motivational, Right. And so by the time they walk in the door, right, or if you teach online classes, by the time they log on to Zoom, okay, you've already earned your money, right? Because they showed up. The hard bit's done for them, right? The rest is easy. All they got to do is do the workout. That's easy. You're going to tell them what to do. They'll do it. So dear listener, I think you provide something incredibly valuable. I think you are literally saving lives. But paradoxically, I think it's not what it's not for the reasons that we thought 
you know, what we do is valuable, but not for the reasons that we thought. It's not valuable <laughs> when you point out which muscles people should be using or correct the pelvic tilt or activate this or deactivate that. That turned out to be of essentially zero value. But what we were doing all the time, but not noticing it, <laughs> that's incredibly valuable, is helping to motivate people by giving them a, a social group that they look forward to, that they feel accountable to, their classmates, that by by helping them set challenging goals and strive towards attaining those goals, by by making them accountable, like they book into class and you message them before and say, hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. Um, by, you know, by making it fun, by, you know, giving them experience of feeling good and feeling masterful in their exercise. Um, you know, all of these things, okay, that is where we provide value, in my opinion. So should we worry about anterior pelvic tilt? Nah, I don't think it's actually a thing. Um, but, and if it is a thing, I don't see any evidence that we need to worry about it. It's, you know, if it was up to me, I would say, <laughs> I never want to hear the term anterior pelvic tilt again. It's dead to me. I'm not interested. Um, but I mean, dear listener, if you want to talk about anterior pelvic tilt, I'd love to talk about it with you. Uh, you're not dead to me. I'll, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to discuss anterior pelvic tilt and your questions and your thoughts. You can reach out to me on Instagram. My Instagram uh, link is in the show notes. Um, but yeah, anterior pelvic tilt, I don't think it's a thing. I don't think it's anything we need to worry about. There's no evidence whatsoever that there's anything we can do about it or that it's a problem in any way, So, or even that we can detect it. So I just think nothing to see here, folks. Go on about your business. And then what are we doing if we're not doing that? Well, by the time they show up, you already did your job, right? So your job in class, in my view, dear listener, is to make it fun, is to help them set goals, is to create social interactions between your clients before, during, and after class. You know, do partner stretches, have a cup of tea and a biscuit afterwards, like all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, create accountability, text people if they miss class, text people before class. Um, you know, make it challenging but achievable. You know, tell them, hey, let's work towards something. Would you like to do your first pull-up? Would you like to do teaser on the long box? Would you like to do whatever, right? You know, get them, you know, get them fired up to achieve goals. That is what you do, I think, that provides unbelievable life-changing, uh, life-extending value for your clients. All right, so that wraps up oh, probably the shortest Pilates Elephants episode in a, in a long while. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd love to know what you think of these solo episodes. Are they boring as batshit? Do you love them? Do you want more? Do you want less? Um, reach out to me on Instagram. Let me know what you think. I really value your opinion. All right, dear listener, I hope you have an awesome day or night, whatever part of the week it is for you, and I look forward to our next combo. Ciao for now. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. 
And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.